following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Turn your Bibles, uh, please. We'll just begin with one verse of Scripture. It's in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Again, what a privilege it is to be with uh, you men this uh, weekend. Trust the Lord will bless us again this morning. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9. Speaking of our Lord, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of the word. Lord, we do thank you for the night's sleep you've given us. We thank you for the yummy meals that have been prepared for us, for those who have labored selflessly and given up a Saturday morning, Friday evening to serve us. We pray your extra special blessing upon them. We pray now that you would help us after a busy week and no doubt very busy schedules to come in. We pray that the Word of God would not be stolen away from our hearts, but that the seeds would be planted deeply and you'd water them and that there might be lasting, both temporal and eternal fruit from your Word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're we're not going to do a detailed study of each individual emotion of Christ such as one message on his love, one on compassion, anger, sorrow, joy. We could have taken that approach. I'm not sure how edifying that that would have been trying to do that in our limited time together. Uh, But rather than doing that, I want to take a broad brush stroke approach, sort of get into the helicopter and take the aerial shot so that we can see the whole forest or at least get a picture of the forest rather than climbing up individual trees and uh, seeing things from those perspectives. And so we're going to do these three broad brush strokes in, five, in four more messages, um, which, again, will go through Sunday evening. Sunday morning, Sunday school will not be one of those. I'll be doing my testimony in the morning. But the three broad brush strokes are the following. We're going to consider the boundaries of our Lord's emotional life, the ballast of our Lord's emotional life, and the balance of our Lord's emotional life. And hopefully this will make sense to you and you go, oh, I see why you did it that way. And and with God's help, trust will be a blessing to you. So without any further ado, let's just jump right into it. In this first session, or really the second session, but the first in which we're really kind of looking at our Lord's emotional life, let's consider the boundaries of his emotional life. Now here's what I mean by boundaries. It was God's design at creation that our emotions be subject to and under the influence and control of his revealed will. In other words, we were designed by God to experience and express emotions within the boundaries he set by his revealed will or his word. And do you know that sin entered into the world when our emotions broke outside of those boundaries? Do you realize that was actually a part of the fall? Do you remember the story of uh, Eve and when she was tempted by the devil to partake of the forbidden tree? 
Uh, you remember in verses 1 to 5 that she gets into this discussion uh, with the devil, and he's trying to convince her uh, the, to doubt God's word, to doubt God's character. And as that begins to have its negative and powerful influence upon her, we read in Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, when it says it was a delight to her eyes, you could argue perhaps that that's the first explicit reference to emotion in the Scripture when it comes to man. You might be able to draw some deductions or inferences from other texts, but we read that when Eve considered the forbidden tree, it was a delight to her eyes. And that word can mean an intense desire or longing, certainly something that registers itself in the realm of human emotions. Eve's emotions were stirred positively to what was forbidden before her hand ever reached out for it. You see that? Her heart was already inclined against God's will and to partake of the forbidden before there was an act. And at that moment, I would argue that her emotions were getting to the point, at least, if not already there, where they were no longer subject to the revealed will of God. Think about that for a moment. God had given Adam and Eve a very specific word of revelation, didn't he? Do not eat of it, for the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now, let me ask you, what emotion, what appropriate emotion should that command and that warning have produced in our first parents? Appropriate fear. And I would suggest that it did before they fell. They were to consider that because God said, do it and you will surely die. But we see something strange or something different happening in verse 6 of Genesis 3, don't we? It's no longer an appropriate fear. Now, when she first starts talking to the devil, we start seeing that. She says, oh, no, no. God said don't eat of it, don't even touch it, which she might have already been getting confused at that point because it sounds like she's going beyond what God said. But she still feels, seems like she's still something. She's under the appropriate fear. She's experiencing fear. No, God said you will die. But by the time he worked his spell on her, we get to verse 6. She now has the emotion of delight. In what is forbidden. Because the devil had convinced her, you will not die. God is just an insecure deity who knows you will become gods. He's trying to keep you from reaching your full potential. He's just a cosmic killjoy that's trying to keep you under thumb. He knows the moment that you partake of that, you will enter into dimensions of fulfillment that you could only dream about. In other words, God can't be trusted. He's a liar. And you see, once Eve was deceived and fell for those lies, her emotions began to operate outside of the boundaries of the will of God. Now, notice the order. What she believed about God in that tree determined her emotional state. And that fueled her guilty action. 
Her emotions were inclined to the forbidden before the act. And it's worth noting that once Eve's emotions went outside of the boundaries of God's revealed will, and along with her, her husband, they began to experience emotions that they were not designed to experience. You remember what happened? We won't read the text. But after they partook, what happened? There was shame and there was fear. Now, it was appropriate that they should have felt shame. It's appropriate that they should have felt that fear. As uh, John Murray said about that text, it would have been completely insensitive to the revolution that had just taken place in their relationship to God had Adam just come bebopping out of the tree saying, hello, God, after he'd sinned. But those were negative emotions that were not pleasant that they didn't have to experience. When her emotions and his emotions went outside the boundaries of the will of God, negative emotions set in. Why is this world filled with people who have emotional lives that are spiraling down into the deep, dark pit of guilt, shame, and crippling fear? It can be traced all the way back to this incident when man's emotions were no longer subject to and regulated by the revealed will of God. Human emotions broke through those boundaries that God had set. Think for a moment just about how God set other boundaries at creation. God made man and woman with a sex drive. The devil didn't give it to you. It is, it is God who gave us the capacity to experience all of the exhilarating and satisfying erotic emotions that go with it. Yet God clearly set boundaries not only for the act, but for the emotions that go with it. And what, is God's, what are God's boundaries? Genesis 2, to 25. The covenant of marriage, one man, one woman, for life, and in a fallen world, until death do you part. So God intended that all of the erotic desire and emotion that accompanies sexual activity is to be experienced and expressed within those boundaries. Not just the act, but the emotions. Untold amounts of emotional wreckage, of shame and guilt, lie heaped up in the junkyard of biblical history and beyond because people have allowed their emotions related to sex to break through the boundaries of the will of God. Makes me think of David, his son, who, who loved his sister. The, the scripture didn't say he thinks he loved The Bible doesn't say that he just thought he loved her. It says he loved her. But it was a love that exceeded the boundaries of the will of God. And before it was over and he committed the act, he then hated her. It twisted him up on the inside. And it left her, though innocent, with, with, with shame. Men, our emotions are to be regulated by the revealed will of God. And it is a lie to think that we have no control over our emotions. And that's the first thing that I want you to see regarding our Lord's emotional life. Christ's emotions were subject to and were regulated by the revealed will of God. And there are two texts of Scripture about Christ that are not found in the Gospels themselves, but they are excellent summaries of the Christ that we read about in the Gospels. And both texts speak of Christ with emotional language. I just read one of them in your hearing, Hebrews 1.9. It says that Jesus loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness, past tense. 
That's talking about the time of his humiliation. When on earth he could be characterized this way. He loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. And the author is declaring there that Christ has now been exalted and that God has poured on him the oil of gladness because during his stay on earth he loved what was right and he hated what was wrong. The Jesus of the Bible was full of hate. Do you know that? He hated everything contrary to the revealed will of God. He not only had love for the pleasant and peaceful fruits of righteousness, he loved the very content of what God wanted him to do. He loved righteousness itself. He didn't merely hate the destructive fruit of lawlessness. He hated sin itself. He hated sin for what it was, an affront to his father. And then there's another text, perhaps you're familiar with it, that speaks of our Lord Jesus in the time of his humiliation with emotional language, and it's Psalm 40. And a portion of this text is actually quoted in the book of Hebrews. We read this of our Lord, a messianic psalm, Psalm 40, verse 7 and 8. Then I said, and this is the Messiah speaking, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Again, that text is partially quoted in Hebrews 10, and it's applied to Jesus Christ. And it reveals the reason Jesus came into the world. He came to do the will of God, and this text says it was his delight to do so. When it says, your law is within my heart, what that's saying is his affections were bound up with what God wanted him to do. It was the delight of his heart to do God's will. Now, do you see how both of those, those texts speak directly to the emotional life of Christ? I delight to do your will, O God. I love righteousness and I hate iniquity. What does this tell us? That Jesus valued doing the will of God. That was the supreme love and supreme commitment of his heart. To use modern terminology, he had an emotional attachment to the word and will of God that could not be broken. And I would say that foundationally, if we're going to develop likeness to the emotional life of Christ, we have to love what he loved and we have to hate what he hated. And we have to find our supreme delight in the will of God. And practically that means that we must live lives committed to keeping our emotions subject to and regulated by the revealed will of God. And I want, to see, I want you to see with me for a few minutes how this played out in our Lord's life from two perspectives. First of all, Christ's emotions were regulated by God's will when God said, don't. Christ's emotions were regulated by God's will when God said, don't. You can turn over with me to Luke chapter 4 for a moment. The first part of this chapter is dealing with the temptations of our Lord. Luke chapter 4. If you're a member here, you know Pastor Smith has uh, preached uh, through this passage at some point. Dealing with the temptations, the various temptations of our Lord while he was in the wilderness. 
The devil is hurling uh, distinct temptations at Jesus. And brethren, I don't believe that it's a mere coinkydink. It's not a coincidence that the temptation by which our first parents fell centered on food. And the first recorded temptation of Jesus centers on food. What do you think? Now let's just look at that temptation for a moment. I want to draw out some implications about our Lord's emotional life from it. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are, or literally since you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, if you think Eve's emotions could be so quickly and easily stirred at the sight of food in a beautiful garden full of other options, how much more quickly and easily do you think a man's emotions could be stirred at the thought of food after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness? Not in a garden full of options, but in a wilderness. Now put yourself in your your Lord's shoes. You are ravenously hungry. You have the supernatural power to make a meal from stones. Now, would you be tempted to turn a rock quarry into a can of Pillsbury biscuits? But Jesus knew that it would be a violation of God's will to use his supernatural power in such a self-directed manner. He understood that he was to trust the Father for his sustenance and for it to be brought about in an ordinary way, just like it is true with us. And by quoting that text from Deuteronomy 8, Jesus was saying this in essence. Satan, food does not keep me alive. I think sometimes people misinterpret that verse to be talking about we live by Scripture and by physical food. I don't think that's the main point. I think he's saying Satan, food doesn't keep me alive. God keeps me alive by the word of his power. Food is merely the means he's chosen to do it. Therefore, I don't need to deviate from his revealed will to meet my physical needs. I can obey him, do his revealed will, while trusting him to provide what I need in his time and in his way. I don't have to cheat for my physical needs to be met. Now, depending on how observant you are, you might be thinking, but this incident says not one word regarding Jesus' emotional state. Not one word is there regarding an emotional response. That would be an accurate observation. But can I suggest that the two texts I've just read in your hearing a moment ago are operative at this point? They're telling us that at this point, Jesus loved God's will and he hated Satan's suggestion. And his delight was in the will of God. And listen, his delight in the will of God was so strong, he'd rather do God's will and stay hungry for a little longer. Do you remember in John 4, Jesus said, this is my meat and drink. To do the will of him who sent me. I'd rather do that than eat. That was his emotional attachment to the will of God. To the will of God. But, but I think it's interesting. Let me just kind of go off this for a moment. I do think it's interesting what the text doesn't say. 
in light of what I've just said. The account doesn't say, now being tempted, Jesus looked at the rocks. He was imagining that they were bread. He began to delight in the thought. His mouth began to water as he contemplated how yummy it would be. Now, am I saying that it would have been wrong or sinful for natural feelings connected with hunger to be generated in our Lord's heart? No, not necessarily. There are natural feelings that come along that we can't completely control. But if that happened at all, the Lord didn't let it go very far. Evidently, as soon as Satan's suggestion entered his mind, he met the suggestion with the revealed will of God. There seems to be no delay, no contemplation, no stirring of his heart in a positive direction whatsoever. Only an immediate counter with Holy Scripture. Now, if that's not a man keeping his heart under control by the Scripture, I don't know what is. Having initially responded to Satan's suggestion that God's, that that tree was off limits, Eve should have stood her ground keeping her emotions under control. She should have never let it go as far as verse 6 of Genesis 3. She should have never delighted in what was forbidden. But what she failed to do, Jesus did. And I believe he provides an example for us to follow at this point. When God's will is don't, we are not to even allow our hearts to delight in the thought of what's forbidden. Now, men, this is so basic, but it's so crucial. Let me just work this out in application, young uh, maybe, Sam, addressing a young single Christian man. Listen, as soon as it becomes clear that that young lady that has your eye is not in Christ, she's not a Christian, even if your emotions have been stirred to a degree in a natural way, and that's fine, the prospect, oh, I, I might not be alone too much longer. That might be a potential wife. And you have those initial stirrings. That's fine. And maybe there's already been a, an initial stirring because she's not hard to look at. But the moment you conclude the best in your best judgment that she's not a Christian, you are to subject your emotions to the revealed will of God and shut down any delight in the thought. Any delight in the thought of what God has forbidden. You say, how does a young single Christian man with raging hormones do that when he has a strong desire for marriage? Bringing his desires and his feelings in subjection to the Scripture and doing what our Lord did. 1 Corinthians 7.39 teaches, a believer may marry whomever he pleases or she pleases, but what's the qualification? Only in the Lord. You say, but oh, pastor, that is so hard. Once the emotions have already begun to move positively in that direction. Yes, I know it's hard. And again, let me suggest those initial, those initial natural feelings of stirring may be completely legitimate, as in Eve's case and even in the Lord's case. But however, see if you agree with this. It's best and wisest to put a clamp even on that. The first time you see her and you realize what a beauty she is and how her personality is sweet as honey, the best and wisest thing to do, listen, even before you, even before you, if you know she's a Christian or not, you don't let your heart get attached 
the best and wisest thing to do is say, wait a minute. I'm not even going to be stirred by her beauty. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. I'm not even going to contemplate her beauty. I'm going to shut that down until I find out more about her to the best of my ability by God's help. He said, but oh, pastor, what if in my initial friendly interactions with her, we hit it off and we have chemistry and there's something about her personality and mine that gels? Then meet it at the front door with 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and lawlessness share together? What does light have in common with darkness? Or what harmony does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? Listen, whatever chemistry you may have at the beginning, trust me, if you're a real Christian, determined to do the will of God, and she's only a nominal Christian, and and you date her, and you wind up getting married, that's going to turn into two kingdoms in the same house. And it won't be long before she doesn't like you very much. Now, brethren, I'm just using that as an example of how whenever you realize something is forbidden, you don't even let your affections go after it. You shut it down. How? Just like Jesus did with the Scripture. Am I making sense? And I'm just using that as an example. But let's say another example. You've been offered a lucrative position with a company or perhaps a significant promotion with a substantial raise. But in course of considering the offer, you discover that it's going to require Lord's Day work. Work that can't be honestly categorized or as works of necessity and mercy. And there are other legitimate job opportunities that may not pay as well. So it's not a matter of being kind of forced into it. And you know that. What should you do at that moment? Even if there's been an initial stirring of natural feelings, which is legitimate, which is normal, the moment you find that out, you meet it with the, at the front door with, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It is God's revealed will that I work six days and get my labor done and to de- dedicate an entire day to Him. You know what we, what we do? What we do is we wait until our affections are wedded to an idea, then we try to pull back. You say, well, Pastor J.J., it sounds like people call me Pastor J.J., by the way. You're, you're, you're talking like we have some real measure of control over our emotions. Yes, I am, because I believe that's true. I've never heard it stated as a formal belief or concept, but it seems to me that there is a lie that people believe in our day. And that lie is that we essentially have no control over how we feel. We never have any control over our moods or emotional state. And I'm convinced that numbers of people actually live that way, that whatever mood, feeling, or emotional state they're in, that's just what they're in for the day. And if they're in a bad mood, you just have to wait till tomorrow. That's not true. Especially for the Christian. Now, it would be ludicrous to suggest that we can completely control our emotions. I'm not suggesting we can just kind of call up joy or call up sorrow. You remember that song from the 80s, if you're that old, don't worry, be happy. You can't, you can't just control your emotions by fiat. But we can have a great measure of control over our emotions. Our Lord did. You know why? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control, Galatians 5.22. The indwelling Spirit gives us the ability to control ourselves 
And listen, what is the main instrument that the Spirit uses to do that? The Word of God. A Christian whose mind is saturated with the Scriptures can have a large measure of control over his emotions. And you know why that is? It's really simple. Barring physiological factors, in almost every situation, my emotional response greatly depends on how I perceive what's going on. It, it greatly depends on how I interpret what's going on, what I believe about it, and the value I place on it. You ever thought about that? You don't stop and think about that when you're having emotional responses. Let me write that down. It's, it's, it's how you interpret it, how you perceive it, what you believe about it, and the value that you place on it. And when I look through the lens of Scripture, allowing God's Word to determine my perception, I let God's Word put the proper interpretation on it, and I let God's Word place the right value on it, then if I'm a Christian, my desires and emotions tend to naturally line up with that. And I believe that the reason the emotional state of many Christians is all over the place, swinging wildly from one extreme to the other, resulting in sinful and unprincipled choices, is because their minds are so little saturated with Scripture. I mean, our Lord was just able to pull up texts like that. The appropriate text to interpret and to apply and to put value on the situation. And that's an example of how our Lord subjected his emotions to God's revealed will when God said don't. Does this make sense? But Christ also subjected his emotions to the revealed will of God when God said do. When God said do. Turn to John chapter 12 for a moment. John chapter 12. Look at what our Lord says in the first part of verse 27, as his death is fresh on his mind. He's having one of those previews of the cross before Gethsemane. And he says in verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. That is describing an intense emotional state. Troubled means his soul was being stirred up. In fact, it's translated one place in the Scriptures, terrified, agitated. Now, would you agree that that is a negative, unpleasant, undesirable emotion? How many of you got up this morning thinking, well, I hope before the day's over, I'm going to be able to say my soul is troubled. I tend to try to avoid that as much as possible. It is not sinful. It is only natural and human. To want to avoid a troubled soul. And if you can do so righteously, it's a good idea. It's only natural to want to relieve a troubled soul and to become a happy soul without agitation, without being stirred up. So rest assured that as a real human being, Jesus is not enjoying his present emotional state at this moment. However, and this is why I chose this passage, I want you to notice that in this passage, Jesus is resolved to do God's will regardless of how it's making him feel. 
Jesus is resolved to do God's will regardless of how it makes him feel. He so loved righteousness, he so hated iniquity. He so delighted in the word of God, in the will of God, that he wanted to do that will. He was determined to do that will no matter what emotional state it put him through. Think about it. His soul is troubled as he thinks about what the will of God entails for him. The soon coming suffering of the cross. But how does he respond? He says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus is saying, why would, I, why would I say save me from this hour? I, I actually came into the world to do this. That wouldn't make any sense. This is, will, this is God's purpose and will for my life. Can't you see in this text that Jesus is resolutely determined to do God's will, regardless of how sorrowful it is making his heart at this point? You see that, men? It's important you see that on this early Saturday morning. Now, as I said last night, there are texts that show depths of emotion that are unique to Christ that we could never experience. This is one of them. We'll know, never know exactly this particular depth of emotion because Jesus experienced it as our substitute. But as I said last night as well, texts like these still give us a general pattern to imitate. And in this case, men, to conform to our Lord's example is for us to be determined to do God's will regardless of how it makes us feel. Let me say that again. If we're going to conform to Christ, we've got to be willing and determined to do God's will no matter how it makes us feel. And this is a big one. Let me uh, flesh it out in application for a minute. Think about what Jesus did not say in response to his troubled soul. He didn't say, my soul is troubled, therefore the cross must not be God's will. My soul is troubled. So there's no way, that's an indication that that's not really God's will for my life. If the cross and all of that agony were the will of God, I'd have peace about it. You ever heard anyone say anything like that? I have more than once. I can remember years ago, uh, someone was planning to do something that was a clear violation of the revealed will of God. And as I was interacting with that person, I think I was going down the road with the person. And I was talking to the person, trying to reason with the person not to take that step, and, and trying to reason, well, you, how do you square that up with the fact that this is going to be a violation of Scripture? Like God said, you know, like, don't do this. And I don't remember the exact words, so it's not an exact quote. The person might have said they had prayed about it. You ever heard that one? Well, I've prayed about it. But what stuck into my mind for all these years is that the person said something like this. God wants me to be happy. You ever heard that? That's determining God's will and purpose for your life based on a desirable emotional outcome. I can remember another situation right around that same time. Um, there was a person that I, I knew at, uh, that worked in a local bank, and there was a decision in this person's life that had more, was moral in nature, had moral consequences or you know, moral aspects to it. And now, whether the decision they made was right or wrong, I can't judge because I don't know all the details, but what has stuck in my mind all these many years later is what was the person's reasoning 
and how they knew they had made the right decision. And the person said something like this. Well, when I was in the situation, I didn't have peace. But now that I'm out of the situation, I have peace. And that's kind of letting me know that it's the right thing. I, I, it must be in God's will. This must be the right thing to do. Now, in the first case I just mentioned, the person has a desired emotional outcome. I want to be happy. And whatever decision brings about that result must be okay with God. In the second case, the person determined God's will by the emotional outcome. It must be God's will because I have peace. What if Jesus had reasoned that way? The fact that our Lord was determined to do the will of God, regardless of how it made him feel, shows that he never determined God's will by his emotional state. Brethren, you don't exegete Scripture with your emotions. You might even have that happen. Well, the Bible says right here, and someone says, well, that, yeah, that just doesn't square with the loving heart of God. So let's go to general statements about God's loving heart to undercut the clear statements of his will. What if Jesus had done that? Listen, doing God's will at times, as I said last night, will sometimes send you to the mountain peaks of joy where only heaven could be sweeter. I don't want to paint the wrong picture. We're not going to be preaching a lot about joy this weekend, but I, I think Pastor Smith will vouch for me. I'm a pretty joyful, happy-go-lucky guy. I'm not a spiritual ogre. I don't think God's chief end is to make us miserable. So God's will at times will cause you to ascend to mountain peaks of emotional high where only heaven could be better. But brethren, there are times when doing God's will and staying committed to his purpose will take you into some very dark places. That will put pressure on your soul where you think your heart could explode. Doing God's will and fulfilling his purpose does not always bring about peace as the dominant feeling of your heart. I'm not saying there can't be an underlying peace. No. From what we know of our Lord, there was an underlying delight here, wasn't there? And the delight was so strong that he was willing to be sorrowful. Now put that together in your head. Listen, sometimes doing God's will can produce more turmoil and disturbance in your mind and heart than you thought possible. There are going to be times where you feel like you're wearing your guts on the outside for people to see. And we can see here from our Lord that peace is not always the dominant feeling. And if you've been a Christian for long enough, then you know what it is to think to yourself, you already, you're already, you've already done the math, all right? And you know that if I take this step and I stay true to Christ in this, I'm going to have some long days and some sleepless nights. Now, does that mean that it's wrong for us to want to avoid the negative impact that doing God's will has upon us? Of course not. This Jesus who said, I won't say save me from this hour, got to the Gethsemane and said, Father, remove the cup. There are times even when God's moral will, though we are delighting in it, has implications that we can see coming. That we want to avoid. And we're like, God, we're, we're not trying to get out of his will, but we would love for God to rearrange the circumstances so it would be a little more pleasant. And it's not wrong to say, oh, Father, will you change the circumstances? But in the end, Jesus resolved to do God's will and said, if, if it's not possible, or he says, all things are possible, but if I want to, be, I want to do it according to your will, and if the only way to do your will is to drink it, then give me the cup. 
And in that case, Jesus didn't choose between the loving heart of God and a difficult task. As he was facing the ugliness of what it meant for them, he could still look through the clouds and say, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And may I say that we learn from the Lord here that he was more concerned about doing God's will than his emotional state. I think that's what trips so many people up in our day. Their, their key basic commitment is I've got to feel good all the time. And whatever takes me there is what matters. Whereas Jesus said, I'd rather fulfill God's purpose for my life than have an untroubled soul. And brethren, how many people in church history lived with troubled souls? A lot for doing God's will. Why? Because they had an underlying delight and commitment to his will. You know, something that this helped me to realize in this study is, and see if this makes sense to you. Sometimes the, the emotion we, listen, I put it this way. The emotion that we're supposed to experience in a situation is God's will. And part of submitting to God's will is submitting to that emotion. For example, you know, before the holidays, found out my sister had, we found out she, that she looked like she might have cancer. And while we were down there for Thanksgiving, she was diagnosed with cancer. And at that time, my grandmother was dying. And when we went back home, she died. We had to go back down there. That was a sad time. You know what? It wasn't just that those circumstances were the will of God. The emotions that went with that circumstance was the will of God for me. Listen, it is a bad habit to try to make yourself feel other than how you're supposed to feel in a situation. That's how drug abuse starts. That's how alcoholism gets its finger. I'm going to make myself feel differently than how I'm supposed to feel. And you know what that can be? Rebellion against God. I have to accept that this is how God wants me to feel. And my prayer has to be in that moment, let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. This is how committed our Lord was to the will of God. And then as I said last night, this is heart work, isn't it? It's heart work. This starts with a simple prayer. Give me a heart, Lord, that loves righteousness. Work in me a hatred for everything that goes against your will. And give me a heart that finds its supreme delight in the will of God. I want my emotions, Lord, to be subject to the boundaries that you have set. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy word. We pray now that you would write it upon our hearts, just this simple opening up the scriptures. I pray, Lord, that you would help us at heart level to delight in your will, to love what is right, to hate what is wrong. I pray, Lord, that we would use the scriptures as you did to keep our emotions subject to your will. I pray, O oh God, that we would care more about your will than how we feel. And that we would follow that will, Lord, at times where it takes us into seasons of great exhilaration, even external peace, where we think life couldn't be better. And, Lord, we pray that we would be just as determined to do that will when it brings us into the depths of sorrow. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you'd conform us more to the image of our blessed Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
We hope you are edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.